Mom, I got the job in Manhattan. Do you have a warm enough winter coat? What about your car? I'm selling it with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. How? I enter my license plate number, miles, condition, upload photos, and boom, an official cash offer from a local dealership. A cash offer instantly? Oh, did you call Aunt Stella? She's right there in Massachusetts. Mom, I literally just got the job. Not everything is as simple as selling your car with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it, kbb.com it. In 2015, Vladimir Putin's number one public enemy, Boris Nemtsov, was shot and killed in front of the Kremlin. He was a relentless critic of Putin, corruption, and war in Ukraine. Then, he was assassinated. I'm Ben Rhodes, writer and co-host of Pod Save the World, and I'm teaming up with Boris's daughter, journalist Jana Nemsova, to tell his story in Crooked Media's new podcast, Another Russia. Together, we uncover what happened to one family and an entire country, and ask whether another Russia is possible. New episodes every Monday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when an argued man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. We're your hosts. I'm Melissa Murray. And I'm Kate Shaw. And Leah Lippman is somewhere deep in the woods, but fear not, she will be back in time for our next episode. But we are coming to you live today with a short emergency episode because it was Turn Up Thursday at the court. And we got two enormous opinions on the opinions in Texas versus California and Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. So in addition to being much anticipated opinions, both of these opinions featured far more unanimity than I think we and many people expected. Uh, Both display Sam Alito reaching new heights of outrage. Um, At this point, I have to say we are starting to wonder whether he might be the one whose imminent retirement we should all be looking out for, uh, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's start off with Texas versus California. So this is the third of the full frontal attacks on the Affordable Care Act. We are not even counting in that figure the repeated challenges to the law contraceptive coverage requirement. This latest challenge, just to remind folks, originates in 2017 when the Republicans in Congress tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Senator John McCain, remember, famously gave the repeal a thumbs down, saving the ACA on the Senate floor. But Congress did go on to amend the ACA, which was actually part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed later in 2017. And it amended the ACA by lowering the penalty for not having health insurance to zero dollars. So a little more background, maybe in order. Recall that under the original Affordable Care Act, the failure to comply with the individual mandate resulted in a financial penalty that was scaled to income. In NFIB versus Sebelius, which the court decided in 2012, the Supreme Court upheld the individual mandate as a permissible exercise of Congress's power to tax. Now, as we mentioned, Congress later 
lowered the penalty to $0. And in this most recent challenge, uh, plaintiffs argued that if the penalty was $0, it could no longer be sustained as a tax, right? So the argument continued, if it wasn't a tax, the individual mandate was therefore unconstitutional. And if the individual mandate was unconstitutional, the entire Affordable Care Act must fall. So maybe let's phrase that more concretely. If the mandate is now unconstitutional, the entire law, with its protection for pre-existing conditions, kids' ability to stay on their parents' health insurance until the age of 26, expanded Medicaid in many states, the contraceptive mandate, and many, many other provisions uh, must also fall. That was the challenger's argument. All right. So who were the challengers in this case? Um, It was a group of states with Texas in the lead with several individual plaintiffs. And they were joined by the United States, including Jeff Wall, Trump's acting solicitor general, who joined these plaintiffs in asking the court to strike down the law in its entirety. And oral arguments, which were heard in November, shortly after the election, was largely consumed with the question of whether these plaintiffs had standing to bring the suit in federal court. And in fact, that actually turned out to be determinative in this case. The court, in a seven to two opinion authored by strict scrutiny favorite Stephen G. Breyer, held that these plaintiffs clearly lacked standing. And so the ACA remains intact. But the court didn't even touch the merits of this claim. And so the ACA remains in its entirety. So let's briefly recap constitutional standing. So put on your con law hats. Constitutional standing doctrine has three principal elements, injury, causation, and redressability. Plaintiffs argued that the law told them to buy health insurance, and so they did. And they spent money buying health insurance that they did not want, and that this was a kind of traditional pocketbook injury. But the court said, no dice. Even if we accept that this is a kind of pocketbook injury, it's not traceable to any government action. And as the court explained, their problem lies in the fact that the statutory provision, while it tells them to obtain that coverage, has no means of enforcement. With the penalty zeroed out, the IRS can no longer seek a penalty from those who fail to comply. There is no possible government action that is causally connected to the plaintiff's injury, the costs of purchasing health insurance, or to put the matter conversely, that injury is not fairly traceable to any allegedly unlawful conduct of which the plaintiffs complain. They have not pointed to any way in which the defendants, the commissioner of the IRS and the secretary of health and human services, will act to enforce the provision. They have not shown how any other federal employees could do so either. The opinion basically says that the plaintiffs cannot satisfy the redressability requirement for standing because there's no one to enjoin because no one has the power to enforce the law And a declaration of unconstitutionality would essentially be an impermissible advisory opinion. In its standing discussion, the court also has this amazingly dismissive paragraph about the argument that Jeff Wall made on behalf of the United States. This is the so-called standing by inseverability theory, Uh, basically that these plaintiffs were injured by some portions of the Affordable Care Act, uh, specifically certain interrelated insurance reform provisions of the ACA that restrict their insurance options and raise their costs of obtaining coverage. And so, according to Solicitor General Wall, they could basically bootstrap that injury into an Article III injury that allowed them to challenge the mandate. And I thought Justice Kagan had a great exchange with Wall on this. Okay. I mean, the United States is usually pretty stingy about standing law, so it did surprise me in much the way that it surprised the Chief Justice that you're coming in here with a theory, which to my mind threatens to kind of explode standing doctrine. I mean, a lot of legislation now is in these huge packages, I mean, even more than uh, the ACA, that 
um, that involve a thousand different subjects, omnibus legislation, where it's just everybody pours everything mm -hmm. in that they can think of. And it would seem a big deal to say that if you can point to injury with respect to one provision, and you can concoct some kind of uh, inseverability argument, then it, allow, it allows you to challenge anything else in the statute. Isn't that something that the United States should be uh, very worried about? And isn't it something that really cuts against uh, all of our doctrine? So I think the whole court was seemed as skeptical as Justice Kagan did in oral arguments about this theory offered by the United States, although Breyer actually doesn't reject the theory on the merits, rather just says, look, these plaintiffs didn't make that argument below. No one raised it at the search stage. And so we're not even going to consider that argument here. The court also took on the question of whether the state plaintiffs had standing. And remember, Texas was the principal state plaintiff here. And I know we're not supposed to mess with Texas, but the court made pretty short work of this argument and in doing so, pretty much messed with Texas. The states had argued that they were injured because the existence of the mandate caused Texans to enroll in other health insurance programs like Medicaid and CHIP and state employee programs, and that the states had to pay costs associated with those enrollments. The court says that as with the individual plaintiffs, it's not clear how any of that is traceable to government action to enforce the mandate, and also that there are all kinds of good reasons having nothing to do with the mandate for which people might... I don't know, enroll in health insurance programs for which they are eligible. So there's no reason to think that this no penalty mandate is what is driving them to enroll in these programs. And so the court that went further to say that it is harder to establish standing when the actions of third parties are so central to the causal chain you are alleging. And here it's the third party's decision to enroll in programs like Medicaid. Although the court was very careful to say that the involvement of actions by third parties does not necessarily defeat standing. And that's obviously a really important caveat because it would have huge implications for all kinds of litigation in all kinds of areas of law. But regardless, the states continue to make a version of the standing through inseverability argument by challenging various administrative requirements, some of which they said impose costs on them. But the court, again, made short work of this, saying that those expenses and requirements are not a result of the mandate. So per our boy Steve, this was a breezy 16 pages in, out, and over, and really never addressed any of the merits of this particular claim. I feel like we need to issue a thank you to Chief Justice Roberts here, which is not something that we typically do on this podcast, but he didn't have to give the opinion to Justice Breyer. You know, Roberts wrote the last two opinions, turning away these big existential challenges to Obamacare, NFIB versus Sebelius, which we mentioned, King versus Burwell in 2015. I kind of assumed he would keep this opinion for himself, um, but no, no, you didn't think no. so? Well, because it was heard in the same sitting as Fulton. And Once I think he was going to take Fulton, that, yeah. that, that's definitely right. But he, And so maybe he and only he could have cobbled together the coalition in Fulton. But I still thought, you know, it's not unheard of to keep two opinions from a yeah, single sitting. True. And, you know, maybe he would have, you know, he preferred actually to dodge responsibility for yet another swooping in to save Obamacare move. Although this one, you know, was 7-2, right? So there's been this kind of like incremental increase in the majority in each opinion that upholds Obamacare, 5-4 in NFIB, 6-3 in King versus Burwell, 7-2 uh, today in Texas versus California. Can we say a little bit about this? So maybe the chief justice just didn't want that smoke, 
right? So he handed this off to Steve Breyer, who, you know, wrote a very efficient 16-page opinion. But it is worth noting that in the middle of a global public health crisis, there are still two people on the court, Justices Alito and Gorsuch, who would strike down the Affordable Care Act and strip millions of Americans of health care right at a time when health seems to be top of mind. Absolutely. Yeah. So we should we should talk about the, the uh, Alito opinion. Maybe briefly, let's mention the Thomas concurrence first. This is a good point. Um, before we get to Alito, let's turn to Justice Thomas, who surprisingly concurred with the majority here. Um, you know, he did file a separate concurrence to say that he continues to be mad and perplexed about um, NFIB versus Sibelius and King versus Burwell. So he's still with Alito on that. Um, but he has a different take on the standing question. And I think it's worth noting here that he often has some really important takes on standing. Um, the whole question of third-party standing in abortion litigation, for example, derived from Justice Thomas's dissent in Whole Women's Health versus Hellershite was a big part of the action in the litigation in June Medical Services versus Russo. Um, ultimately not determinative there. But I think here it's not surprising that he would join the majority on this standing question because it seems to have exercised him over time. And he noted, the plaintiffs failed to demonstrate that the harm they suffered is traceable to unlawful conduct. Although this court has erred twice before in cases involving the Affordable Care Act, it does not err today. I mean, these guys really hold a grudge, you know? <laughs> the, the, the legal issues in this case are totally unrelated to the legal issues in both of the previous two Affordable Care Act cases. Um, and yet, Alito spends 35 pages telling us he's still mad about the prior cases, and, and Thomas specifically wants to wants us to know, like, he is mad too. But as you said, Melissa, right, on the facts of this case, he just doesn't think the plaintiffs have standing. All right. So should we turn to the Alito dissent really quickly? Um, we are going to get into this next week, too, when Leah comes back, because we can't do this justice without Leah, who has thoughts. But... So this is a teaser. We're going to give you an Alito teaser. It's a little teaser. A little, an amuse-bouche. An <laughs> exactly. Alito amuse-bouche. <laughs> the entree um, will be like Monday or Tuesday, probably. And it will be steaming hot. Okay. Um, this was 35 pages. When the With a 16-page majority. It's crazy. I know. Twice as long as the majority opinion. So that that's really something. And it begins with what I think might reasonably be called an overwrought narrative in which the forces of righteousness keep bringing the court these unassailable arguments that should lead to the Affordable Care Act's demise. But then the court again and again and again improbably rescues the errant act. Um, he doesn't mention the chief justice by name here, but it's clearly who he's talking about. So at one point he says, in a stunning turn of events, the threat to the ACA was diffused. Once again, some fear that the act was in mortal danger, but the court came to the rescue. So this is some really weird Chief Justice Roberts fanfic in the making. And all I can say is that I hope Tom Holland will play the Chief Justice in the movie version of this descent. Isn't that guy really young? Isn't he way too young to play John Roberts? I, I, I think he just he's so good. And did you see when he did that um, Rihanna lip sync challenge uh, umbrella? Like, so I, I'm just... I have some big Tom Holland energy, and I'd love to see what he brings to it. <laughs> All right, that's a casting choice. Okay. Um, do you have a better choice? No, Who else I don't. You? I, okay. I, ben Affleck, obviously not. No, <laughs> he is front of mind. But, um, hmm. We'll get. We'll, 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 we'll ponder it. Um, okay. So, but on the substance of the Alito opinion, so he goes on to explain. You know, he does think the states have standing. I think the fact that 
even he doesn't touch the individual plaintiffs sort of novel standing arguments is striking. But he does believe the states have standing, says they're injured by a range of different parts of the Affordable Care Act, you know, even though this lawsuit doesn't challenge those. So he does seem to be endorsing this standing through inseverability approach. Um, and then having found standing secure, at least for the state plaintiffs on the merits, he says, look, uh, the zero penalty mandate raises no revenue, so it can no longer be a permissible exercise of Congress's power to tax. So it has to fall. And so, too, do the other provisions of the Affordable Care Act that the states say burden them and that are inextricably linked to the mandate. Um, he ends you know, again, more overwrought rhetoric. He says, no one can fail to be impressed by the lengths to which the court has been willing to go to defend the ACA against all threats. I mean, that's more of the fanfic language, right? Um, but then he says, look, a penalty is a tax. The United States is a state. 18 states who bear costly burdens under the ACA cannot even get a foot in the door to raise a constitutional challenge. Um, fans of judicial inventiveness will applaud once again, but I must respectfully dissent. Wait, this was his respectful right. dissent. <laughs> We're going to get to Fulton. Because he has... <laughs> An unrespectful yeah, dissent later. It, that, that sentence is conspicuously absent in Fulton. Um, but just to take another beat or two on the Affordable Care Act, there's a footnote, footnote nine, that I think is worth flagging because Justice Alito is evidently a chaos agent, right? So he makes clear he is gunning for the court to take another Affordable Care Act case, right? Maybe this one will lose 8-1 if the trend continues. Um, but he basically says, look, if the effect of the court's decision is dismissal of this action for lack of Article Three jurisdiction, the states may file a new action. In any event, many other parties will have standing to bring such a claim based on a variety of the ACA's substantive provisions that are arguably inseparable from the mandate. Our Affordable Care Act epic may go on. Like, why would you want that? I mean, you just think it only takes one, like one successful shot, so you may as well keep taking them and potentially some legal theory will find a more receptive audience. So on the one hand, I want to believe that the kind of judicial saga around the Affordable Care Act is largely over. On the other hand, you know, so long as there are parties interested in continuing to bring these claims and, you know, they get encouragement from the likes of, you know, this Justice Alito footnote, um, maybe there will be more. I just don't know at this point. I think that's a really terrific point. Um, I will note that in the press coverage of this case this morning, to a person, I think most of the media pundits have been saying that this is sort of the death knell of Republican objections to the ACA. And I'm like, read the footnotes. Um, it, it may not be a challenge like this one, but there may be more challenges. It may not be to the full scope of the act, but maybe it's like abortion. It's just sort of this piecemeal chip, chip, chipping away at the various provisions over time. I think that's astute. I mean, I think I, I definitely said, I think on, on ABC this morning, I think this is the last of the big ones, but I, I confess we got on air before I'd read all the footnotes. And this footnote <laughs> gave me pause. You know, this is two justices, so I'm not sure this means there's going to be an appetite on the part of, you know, even four to take up another big kind of frontal assault. But uh, but I wouldn't but it doesn't it have out. to be a frontal assault. I mean, you right, could do this over time in chunks. Like, you know, when you chip away at this and you chip away at that and suddenly it's sort of a shadow of itself. And, you know, we've seen that work really well in other contexts. Absolutely. And even in the ACA with, with respect to the contraceptive care provision. Yeah. Um, so that's so that is, you know, the playbook is already there. So maybe that's the way the strategy shifts sort of after today. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Priscilla. This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne toast down in Brazil. Smells like anything you think could happen, probably will. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, 
Sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher. And you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. All right, so... Basically, the court woke up this morning and chose violence because it released two of its most highly anticipated decisions on the same day with a little bit of sovereign immunity thrown in to break up the excitement. So hot on the heels of the ACA case, we got the much anticipated decision in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. And quick refresher, Fulton was a follow-on from 2018's Masterpiece Cake Shop in which the court punted on the broad question of whether religious liberty trumps statutory commitments to equality and anti-discrimination law. In Masterpiece, the court avoided the big question by finding that state officials had demonstrated anti-religious animus against the Christian baker, Jack Phillips. So Fulton was a case that brought the same issue squarely before the court in factual circumstances that were also extremely compelling. The background here is that the city of Philadelphia outsources the administration of foster care services, which encompasses a range of services, including the vetting of prospective foster care parents, to private entities. Uh, And the city requires all of the agencies to whom it subcontracts this work to comply with its non-discrimination policy, which includes a prohibition on discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Catholic Social Services, which is one of the entities to whom the city subcontracts this work, sued the city arguing that constitutional protections for religious liberty allow it to be exempt from the city's non-discrimination requirement in the vetting of prospective foster care parents. There are a number of questions presented to the court. The first was whether the government violates the First Amendment by conditioning a religious agency's ability to participate in the foster care system on taking actions and making statements that directly contradict the agency's religious beliefs. The second question, which was a lot bigger, was whether the court's 1990 decision in Employment Division versus Smith should be revisited and overruled. And in Smith, a Native American challenged his ineligibility for unemployment benefits on the 
the ground that the basis for his ineligibility, his use of peyote, a hallucinogenic drug, was part of his religious observance and thus constituted an imposition on his free exercise rights. In resolving the case in favor of the state, the court held that neutral laws of general applicability are subject to rational basis review, even when they have an impact on religion. And this was a revision of the prior standard under Sherbert versus Ferner, which would have imposed strict scrutiny as the appropriate standard. So today, the court, led by the chief justice, crafted a unanimous decision that narrowly threaded the needle, basically concluding that Philadelphia's anti-discrimination mandate infringed Catholic Social Services free exercise rights, but refusing to take up the invitation to overrule Smith. So specifically, the court said that since the city allowed exemptions to its policies, those policies didn't represent neutral laws of general applicability. This meant that the rational basis test of Smith didn't apply, that the proper way to evaluate the city's requirement was by using strict scrutiny, and that imposing this non-discrimination requirement on Catholic social services did not survive that level of scrutiny. There is a lot to unpack in this decision. Um, It's more muscular approach to religious freedom, uh, the fact that it could have been even more sweeping than it is. But to help us break it all down, we are so delighted to have with us Professor Catherine Frankie. Catherine is the James L. Dorr Professor of Law at Columbia University, where she also directs the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law and is the faculty director of the Law, Rights, and Religion Project. Welcome, Catherine. Great to see you, Melissa and Kate. So we we want to go deep on all the different writings in this case. Maybe could we start by asking for your kind of bottom line takeaway from the majority opinion, right? Is this opinion basically status quo preserving? Is it just kind of a rerun of Masterpiece Cake Shop? Or does it in some meaningful way recalibrate the balance of religious liberty and broad equality principles? Well, what I think it does is it solidifies what has been an ongoing recalibration that really reached its its strongest point in the COVID cases. And we've been thinking about these this actually this last year and a half is a period of COVID opportunism uh, that the uh, right-wing uh, evangelical advocacy organizations have exploited um, uh, to expand religious liberty rights. And Melissa, I borrowed slash stole that term COVID opportunism from you. So I want to properly well, credit I it. I borrowed slash stole it from Rachel Rabouche. So. <laughs> um, and so in these COVID cases over the last uh, 18 months, religious organizations have challenged mass gathering bans that governors, I think, reasonably uh, implemented in order to protect public health uh, by saying that if you don't exempt religious organizations from Uh, these mass in-person gathering bans, but you do allow grocery stores and pharmacies to stay open, then you're discriminating against religion. And I think a few years ago, we would have thought that was a laughable argument, but it is now the rule of the land, the law of the land. And so what what Fulton did is just solidify and move a little bit farther down the court. Um, That new interpretation of discrimination on the basis of religious identity or religious practice, that I would know is so different, if not the opposite of the way we think about protecting against discrimination on the basis of race or sex or sexual orientation. So we're seeing um, what I would describe as a kind of tiering or prioritization of certain constitutional rights over others. And religious liberty is right at the top now. Um, I would imagine the gun case they've taken for next term will also elevate gun rights to first class status and sexual orientation, race, sex, um, reproductive rights, 
now enjoy a second-class status under the Constitution. So even though nothing in the majority opinion by the Chief Justice explicitly says anything to this effect, the cumulative impact of the COVID cases in particular sort of culminating in the Tandon versus Newsom, California case, um, but several other COVID cases, and what the court did here basically suggests that religious liberty gets like most favored nation status under the Constitution whenever it conflicts with other kinds of rights or protections. Is that basically you think where we are? That's right. I, 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 this most favored nation term, I think, is confusing. Uh, I, don't, I think most people don't understand what it means. So I've been trying to think of it as a kind of religious supremacy, okay. that religious liberty rights are supreme over all other rights. And it's through this series of COVID cases now culminating in um, Fulton that we see that this is how the court's going to approach religious liberty. And I think we all were worried that Amy, Amy Coney Barrett on the court would be a real game changer. Turns out they didn't even need her vote. There were enough votes to do this, even with Justice Ginsburg on the bench. So I'm glad you mentioned the newest justice, Amy Coney Barrett. And and as you suggest, during her confirmation proceedings, um, the question of her religious faith kind of loomed large, even though it was not explicitly discussed. But she actually joined the majority here, but wrote a separate concurrence that she was joined in by Justices Kavanaugh and Breyer for all but the first paragraph. What did she make of this concurrence and what does it tell us about the future of Employment Division versus Smith? This was, again, the precedent that the court declined to overrule here, but still looms large in the determination of this case. You know, the justices are smart and they're laying um, uh, the ground for what will come next. And so she's, in a way, I think, foreshadowing the way in which I think Smith has now been given the, what I'll call the Roe treatment. So Roe versus Wade remains good law, in, at least on paper. Um, but since the day after it was decided, it's been consistently and devastatingly hollowed out through uh, a wide range of Supreme Court decisions such that it does almost no work anymore. And I think Smith has now been hollowed out to such a degree that they don't even have to go to the trouble of overruling it because they've reinterpreted it in such a way that it's consonant with what they might have put in place um, had they overruled Smith, which would have been a harder thing to justify than just reinterpreting it so that only those of us who are in the know actually know what happened, as opposed to uh, a headline in the New York Times of, oh, look, they overruled an important precedent. And we may see the same thing happening with Roe. So this is a functional, if not formal, overruling of Smith. What, in your mind, explains the decisions by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan to join in that project? Well, you know, creeping into the minds of Supreme Court justices is always a perilous project. But I think um, there is a possibility that there was a Alito majority opinion that um, had five votes, which would have been worse um, than what we got today. And I think there was an effort to get uh, the more liberal members of the court to join a different opinion rather than dissent uh, in order to do damage control. So having the chief write um, a decision that doesn't overturn Smith entirely, but does almost the same doctrinal work as might've been the case if they overturned Smith. And to do so for a unanimous court might have been a tactical decision on the part of the more liberal members of the court to, um, uh, to, to limit some of the 
the bleeding in a case like this. That's a guess. It's an interesting theory, and I, it does comport with some odd features of the opinion, which are that, you know, the Alito dissent, we talked about the length of the Alito dissent in the Affordable Care Act case. I'm sorry, it's a concurrence here, but the Alito concurrence, which is a dissenting kind of a concurrence, uh, is 77 pages compared to the 15-page majority opinion. That's an odd length for, uh, you know, concurrence, but a perfectly you know, normal in this court length for a majority opinion. The kind of extensiveness of the historical analysis is something that you see much more frequently in a majority opinion uh, than a concurring opinion. And also there's kind of the, the the clock, right? It took a long time for the court to produce this opinion. And if the kind of internal realignments that you are imagining did occur, then all of that would have taken some time and might explain why we have waited since the beginning of November for this opinion. So I have no idea if this is what happened, but I think it's a very interesting theory. I, I think it's a completely plausible theory that he lost his majority um, and, you know, everyone had to reassemble. C- can I come back, though, to the whole question of Smith? Because your comment suggests that there's a way in which, from 1990 forward, Smith has become a kind of progressive talisman in terms of religious liberty. And I just want to sort of tack back to the origins of that case. Um, you know, that was a case where the claim of religious liberty was from a member of a minority religious sect, a Native American who was using hallucinogenic drugs as part of his religious practice. And the court, in a decision authored by noted leftist Antonin Scalia and joined by another noted leftist, Chief Justice William Rehnquist, as well as Justices Stevens, Kennedy, and O'Connor, who joined in the judgment but concurred separately, abandoned strict scrutiny, which would have been the applicable standard of review for a neutral law of general applicability that imposed a burden on religious liberty. How did Smith become a kind of progressive talisman? And, you know, why aren't we sort of talking about the kind of identity politics that seem to be at play in Smith and are really different from some of the other decisions that are being invoked in this Alito dissent, like Yoder, where the Amish are involved, or Sherbert, where it involves a Seventh-day Adventist, um, religions that, though minority sects, are closer in their features to Christianity than the Native American religion at issue in Smith? Well, I I guess I would take issue with the premise of your question. I'm not sure that Smith was seen as a progressive case when it came down. No, like like later, like it's... Alito seems to think of Smith as a real deviation and and one that um, favors a more expansive understanding of equality as opposed to religious liberty. Yeah. Well, the pre-Smith cases, all of the court's religious liberty cases that they really built out in the 60s and 70s, understood religious liberty rights as inextricably tied to an equality um, norm. Uh, They cite the uh, race equality cases when they first develop really that First Amendment religious liberty jurisprudence. They borrow the idea of strict scrutiny that was just being developed by the court. And I think they understood the idea of a Uh, A pluralistic society has to tolerate lots of different kinds of people, whether it's people who are different on the basis of their race or their religion, um, uh, and saw it very much as an individualized minority right. Um, And and so the court very often, pre-Smith, engaged in a kind of thoughtful balancing between religious liberty for a small group like the Amish um, and um, the larger interests of, let's say, having your kids go to public school and get a secular sort of um, a democratic education. Um, what Smith did was um, say, well, actually, no, we're not going to accommodate these religious minorities anymore unless they're singled out. Um, and what I saw going on that, that, that would motivate Justice Scalia to be the author of that opinion was uh, that he was looking over his shoulder at the race discrimination cases Mm -hmm. and the idea of disparate impact. 
And he wanted to make sure that he wasn't developing a norm in the religious liberty context that would come back to bite him um, in the race discrimination context. And so the both the right and the left went into a state about Smith and said, we have to have some kind of federal statute to protect minority religious communities. Um, and thus we get RIFRA three years later, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which basically did nothing until about 15 years ago when evangelical Christians took it over. And it's at that point that we start to see um, RIFRA becoming the safe haven of the religious right, when interestingly enough, it was the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops who opposed the passage of RIFRA when it was being debated in Congress in 91 and 92, because they felt that progressives would use religious liberty rights as a way to justify access to abortion, um, which had been a tried and true strategy pre-Roe. Um, the clergy consultation service and other religious progressives said, you know, look, I have a faith-based belief that I get to be the steward of my own body of how many children, how often, no children, or my husband and I should be able to decide that, not the state. So there was a faith-based justification for um, uh, access to abortion and contraception that we kind of forget about. And that's what, the, but the bishops had not. <laughs> and so they opposed the passage of RIFRA on that ground. And it was really, they were the holdouts that finally had to be convinced. And today, of course, it's the religious right, including the bishops who um, have um, captured religious liberty rights as a, as a sword for their cause. So um, like most rights, they swing back and forth over time. Um, uh, and I don't see religious liberty rights as being essentially progressive or conservative in their very nature at all. Part of what we've been doing at the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia is try to spell out through time in the United States that there have been many progressive social movements, including, of course, probably most prominently, the racial justice movements of the, of the 1960s um, that, that were faith-based at their core or at least in a significant way. Um, so I think the swing that we're seeing with religious liberty rights now hopefully will swing back at some point. Um, the arc of constitutional rights is long. But does it bend toward justice? <laughs> yeah, well, not without work. It doesn't do it as a law of physics, right? And that's our work is to try to, uh, try to get some of that bending happening um, and lifting up progressive communities of faith, which are often communities of color, to have a space in this discussion. So, so I guess I'm, it's a very long-winded way of, of taking a little, at least a, an amendment to your, this, your setup for the question. Yeah, I, I take it as a friendly amendment and it, it was a fantastic and really interesting answer. Um, again, the work that you all are doing at the center is really fantastic. And again, shows that the whole understanding of religious liberty is actually more capacious than perhaps these debates allow. Yeah, if I can add one other thing, the uh, Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts notes early in the Fulton opinion how wonderful Catholic Social Service and other religious organizations have been in kind of filling a gap in the capacity of municipalities or states to address foster care and adoption needs. And gee whiz, isn't that wonderful of them? But, you know, historically, my, my colleague Liz Platt, who directs the Law, Rights and Religion Project, pointed this out this morning. Um, uh, th those Catholic services were created because of religious-based discrimination, right? They weren't, they, they weren't just raising their hand as an act of 
of um, generosity for the city more generally. They were filling a gap of Catholic-based discrimination and other forms of discrimination. And we do see across the country a number of these faith-based adoption agencies, mostly evangelical Christian, being unwilling to vet Jewish parents or parents who are not evangelical Christians. So this is not just an issue that affects the LGBT community. Um, carving out this kind of exception can, can, can influence everyone. And I think in the long run is bad for religious liberty. You know, never mind equality. It's bad for religious liberty. That's a really fantastic point. Um, and again, I, I think one that did not really get surfaced in much of the discussion of this case, but we appreciate you bringing it in here. So all that history is so fascinating, Catherine. What Alito seems to want in uh, his separate writing here is to jettison Smith, but not to replace it with this kind of more kind of nuanced, kind of receptive to balancing the need to balance various kinds of important rights claims in a pluralistic democracy with lots of people of faith and lots of people um, asserting different kinds of rights, um, but instead to replace it with this kind of original public meaning focus on free exercise. And he, so he does this sort of, since we're talking about Scalia, he does this really kind of peculiar move with both Smith, Scalia's opinion in Smith, and then Scalia's opinion in Heller. Your theory for what actually was driving Justice Scalia and Smith is really smart, Catherine, so maybe maybe that is right. Alito seems just like perplexed, like how could the Scalia he knows with the method that he advocated have written Smith? Um, and so he basically doesn't really answer his own question. He sort of poses it, but then says what we should do is use the method, like the one true method that Scalia used in Heller to construe the Second Amendment to properly interpret the original public meaning of the First Amendment or the Free Exercise Clause, at least, um, and I think does emerge with this sort of primacy of free exercise as compared to other rights and values kind of a sort of takeaway. Um, so, but it is an odd move. I've never, it's it just, to, it's so Scalia focused and then it's, it's it so imports this method from an opinion in an entirely different, obviously, domain. But you suggest potentially that's, this is not a, you know, an arbitrary selection, right? That really this is about potentially a move to elevate free exercise under the First Amendment and gun rights under the Second Amendment and to subordinate other kinds of constitutional values uh, beneath those two. Um, so I think that that is all really interesting and illuminating. Um, Catherine, is there anything else about the Alito opinion that you want to highlight for our listeners? Well, I think he also tells a particularly idiosyncratic story of the pre-Smith jurisprudence. Um, uh, and he does his math wrong in terms of how long ago those cases were, which one of his clerks or somebody should have caught. But they, uh, the, those opinions have not been in place as long as he states they are. Um, but just to go back to something we were talking about earlier, what the court did as it was developing that early um, uh, religious liberty jurisprudence was really impose a kind of not strict scrutiny at all, um, but reasoned and careful balancing. Um, and it was before, of course, the court had all these tiers of scrutiny as part of the kind of core constitutional doctrine that in some ways is walking away from now in other contexts um, and, and, and was able to hold two ideas in their head at the same time. And I think what we're seeing with this court, and Alito I think is an excellent example, is he can't think two values at the same time. One has to be vanquished from mm. the scene mm. in order for him to take another one seriously. And that's the, one of the amazing cool things about the Constitution is that it's trying to hold a lot of complexity 
um, and do so in a way that gives us the tools for how to manage that complexity. And so well, some of what this jurisprudence is doing, I think, is dumbing down the Constitution and um, uh, creating a kind of jurisprudence that is always one-off, you know, with those, so that we can say, oh, well, this is a very limited interpretation. It's limited to the facts or some of the sort of strangeness of the particular statute. Um, uh, but that to me isn't a, what a sophisticated Supreme Court does in most cases and cases like this. Why take the case if all they're going to do is issue some kind of technocratic reading as opposed to thinking hard about hard things? And I don't see the dominant majority of this court actually willing to do that. And I think that does a disservice, not just to religious liberty, but to the Constitution itself. Well, that is a powerful note on which to end. So, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing that amazing history of the First Amendment and religious liberty and our long and winding path to this particular moment. Um, we will be back next week with a longer episode going through this last opinion drop. So we'll pick up Nestle versus Doe. And of course, we'll have Leah to weigh in on the ACA challenge. But we are so grateful to you listeners for joining us for this emergency episode. And Catherine, thank you for logging on to help us parse through all of these different threads. And if you are a fan of the pod and would like to support the work that we're doing, you can check out www.strictscrutinypodcast.com. And if you'd like to support the pod by being a subscriber, check us out on www.glow.fm forward slash strict scrutiny. Thanks so much to Melody Rowell, our producer who makes us sound so great and to Eddie Cooper, who does our music. We will see you next time.